As I mentioned previously, this is the last sermon in this series, The Lord of the Banquet, where we have been investigating why Jesus chose this wedding at Canaan to the turning of the water into wine to be his first miracle. And as we have done throughout this series, let's begin by reading the text which is recorded for us in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Hear now the word of God. On the third day there was a wedding in Canaan of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, What does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to do, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 to 30 gallons of water each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw out some now and take it to the head waiter. And so they took it to him. And the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it had come from. But the servants who had drawn the water knew. And the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of the signs Jesus did in Canaan of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this they went down to Capernaum. He, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. That finishes the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Now, in the first sermon in this series, we looked at those who were invited to the wedding and concluded that Mary, Jesus, and Jesus' brothers had been invited to the wedding either because they were close family friends or relatives. But the disciples of Jesus were not family. We see the fact that Jesus' disciples actually were only invited to the wedding at Canaan a few days prior to what we have recorded for us in John chapter 2. So we see Jesus' disciples, well, they were strangers at the wedding feast. So the question we ask ourselves is why were strangers invited to a week-long wedding celebration that included a full course of food and drinks? And we came to the conclusion it was because Jesus wanted to underscore the truth that in God's kingdom, strangers are welcome to the banquet. Amen? This is good news for all those who remember that there was a time when we were strangers to the covenant of promise. There was a time where we had no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, we who were formerly far off have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Through the blood of Christ, strangers are welcome to the banquet as family. We see this was what Jesus wanted to underscore in this, for his first miracle. 
And it's something we should, as his people, just really thank God for. That we who were strangers are now members of the family of God. In the second sermon, we considered the redemptive significance behind the wedding ceremony and concluded that the symbols behind the wedding ceremony are fulfilled for us in Christ. First of all, that Christ has chose us to be his bride. We are betrothed to Christ. And we also see that the scripture teaches us that God the Father set the price for the dowry to be paid by our bridegroom, Jesus Christ, through the sacrifice of himself upon the cross, through the shedding of his blood. And once Christ, our bridegroom, paid that dowry to the Father, then, in consistent with the wedding ceremonies, the bridegroom returned to his Father's house. In this case, Jesus returned to God the Father, who is in heaven. So we see today the church is in this interval stage of the wedding ceremony where the bride is making herself ready for the return of the bridegroom. We see that the bridegroom makes herself ready through the implementation of God's holy provisions such as prayer, the sacraments, fellowship together, And most particularly, making ourselves ready through the washing of the word in our lives. We see that we as believers are to use these holy provisions as we eagerly await the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we eagerly await our bridegroom to return. For scripture tells us that even though we don't know the day or the hour, when Christ returns, he will come and capture us together as his bride. And he will lead us into a heavenly procession to be with the Lord forever and ever. Amen. Amen. And we will be with the Lord gathered into what the Bible calls the marriage supper of the Lamb, the great banquet of God. In the third sermon, we look closely at this wedding banquet, what the Bible calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we concluded that in our modern day wedding ceremonies, it's all about the bride. All the attention is upon the bride. As I shared with you a couple of weeks ago, nobody stands up when the groom walks in. In our modern day ceremonies, it's all about the bride, but that's not the way it's going to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's going to be all about the groom, our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he is the one who has gathered strangers into himself and made them members of the family of God. He is the one who has given them holy provisions to make themselves ready for that eternal day with the Lord. It's all about the groom. It's all about the groom. And just listen again to just a few of these verses that talks about this. Where we see in the Song of Songs. He brought me into his banqueting table. His banner over me is love. See the emphasis is all about the groom. He's the one who's brought us in to his banqueting table. He's the one who has covered us in his love. 
We also see that Jesus taught his disciples that he has, he has granted that we would eat at his table in his heavenly kingdom. In just the same way that Jesus received sinners and ate with them in his earthly ministry, so we see that Jesus will in his heavenly kingdom. But the difference will be that at the marriage supper of the Lamb, he would have clothed us with fine linen made white by the blood of Christ. Jesus told us before his departure that he would never again drink of the fruit of the vine until he drinks it anew with us in his heavenly kingdom. And on that day when he comes, receives us as his bride, ushers us into the marriage supper of the Lamb, as we sit and dine at his heavenly table, Jesus will take the cup and he will say, it is finished. It has all been accomplished. And he will take the drink of the wine. Now all that leads us to today. As we consider the better wine. Are you all here with me this morning? I believe that Jesus chose the turning of the water and the wine to launch his earthly ministry. Because the better wine exemplifies the more excellent ministry that Christ came to establish. We see that God gave shadows and types in the Old Testament through his law. But when Christ came, it is all revealed, all unfolded for us. Christ has the more excellent ministry, the better wine. And I think no other epistle really points this out of the better ministry that Christ has given to us than the epistle to the Hebrews. Where we see that the recipients of the book of Hebrews were considering going back into rule keeping righteousness. Considering going back into Judaism. And God inspired the writer of Hebrews to write an entire epistle basically describing no, 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 no. Christ is the better way. Christ is the better wine. He is the fulfillment of everything we see in the old. When you look through the book of Hebrews, you'll first of all see that through Christ's accomplishments, he ushered in a better covenant with better price, uh, promises. We see that through the ministry of Christ, that, that Christ is actually better than Moses. The writer of Hebrews explains to us that Christ is the better high priest because he can sympathize with our weaknesses. The writer of Hebrews explains to us that Christ is the better mediator of the better covenant because it's an eternal one. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Christ provided a better sacrifice that is not a yearly sacrifice of bulls and goats, but a sacrifice once and for all, the sacrifice of himself as the Lamb of God. Amen? So what we see is that the writer of Hebrews is expounding to us that Christ is the better wine, better than what was ever previously served. Christ is the better wine. And Christ came to establish to do the will of the Father. And by doing the will of the Father, Jesus successively took away the first, the former, in order to firmly establish the second, the better, the better wine. You see, the law is just a shadow 
of the good things that were to come through Christ. The law and all that we see it in the Old Testament is just a symbol that relates to foods and drinks and various washings and regulations. But we see when Christ appeared, he, entered, he ushered in the good things to come. He ushered in the best of all, of every, anything that's ever come before. And this miracle of turning the water into wine was meant to manifest the glory of Christ as the Son of God who came to fulfill all of God's holy commands. And he did this so that all those who believe in him would be able to drink of the better wine of God. No longer the poor wine of the old, but the better wine of the new. You see, this was the purpose for Jesus' coming. And he desired to illustrate this purpose through this first miracle. Now, many miracles will happen after this. Actually, the Gospel writer John tells us at the end of his epistle that there's things that Jesus has done that have not been written down in the pages of Holy Scripture. As a matter of fact, the books of the world couldn't hold everything that Jesus has done. But we see that even though there were many miracles to follow, it was this first miracle that best illustrates the result of Jesus' overall purpose for coming. Jesus came to accomplish all of the Father's holy will so that believers could drink of this better wine, this better wine of the new covenant through the transforming work of Christ in our hearts. Now this morning what we're going to do, we're going to take a walk through the narrative. We haven't done that actually yet in this series. We're going to walk through the narrative. And, and as we do this, I, I hope that you are able to see the divine drama that's being built and established here. Now the text itself is very brief and very simple, not a lot of details. But I think when you look through it in a perspective of Christ's fulfillment, I think you'll come to the conclusion of why Jesus chose this to be his first miracle. We see that John chapter 2, first two verses start by establishing the fact that there was a wedding in Canaan of Galilee. And then tells us that Jesus, Jesus' mothers, his disciples, and the broader text tells us his brothers all attended the wedding feast at Canaan. But then the narrative discloses that the wine ran out. Now remember that the host family was responsible for providing all the food and drinks for their guests. And this would last for at least seven days. And for the, the wine to run out, this would bring great embarrassment upon the host, host family and great embarrassment upon the bride and the groom. The text basically tells us that Jesus' mother, Mary, became aware of this embarrassing problem. And we see by her giving orders to the servants later on in the text 
that it leads us to conclude that Mary in some way was involved in hosting this marriage feast and ordering the amount of food and wine to be served throughout the feast. So we see that immediately after Mary is informed that the wine had run out, she went to Jesus for help. She didn't go to the head steward. She didn't go to the bride and groom. She didn't go to the host family. She went immediately to Jesus. And there what we see is the narrative brings us into this, what I'm calling a divine dialogue between Jesus and his mother. If you're still here, say amen. Amen. The first thing we see in this divine dialogue is Mary says, they have no wine. This is the first word spoken in the narrative. They have no wine. Mary felt responsible for fixing this embarrassing problem. And as I said a couple weeks ago, there is no time to run out to total wine and pick up a few cases. She needed a miracle. And with Mary saying this, they have no wine to Jesus, basically is basically sharing with us her disposition. They have no wine. Jesus, I have a big problem here. They have no wine. They're empty. All of their supplies have run out. They've exhausted all of their resources. They have no ability to fix this problem. They are destitute. They are in need of a miracle. So spiritually speaking, we see Mary's disposition in coming to Jesus saying they have no wine. Well, it's actually the same conclusions that a person must come to to receive God's gracious redemption through Christ. We must come to the point, every person must come to the point where they need a miracle. They must come to the point where they confess that they are spiritually empty must come to the point where we admit that we have exhausted all of our resources and that we have no ability to fix this problem. We must come to the point where we acknowledge that we are spiritually destitute and need of a miracle and only Jesus can fix our problem. When I was right out of high school, I was able to come home one day My father was there. We started talking about my crazy life. And as we talk, my dad says, Brian, the only answer for your life is Jesus Christ. And I'd heard that all my life growing up. But that day, it was like a spear that penetrated my heart. Only Jesus could fix my problem. And that's where God wants us all to begin. We see that not only is Mary 
confessing her, her aptitude towards Christ and saying, listen, you're the only one that can fix this. But she's demonstrating to us our spiritual posture as we come to Christ. We need a miracle. We're spiritually empty. We've exhausted all of our resources. We're spiritually destitute. Jesus, only you can fix my problem. They have no wine. It seems to me on the other side here is that Mary has an unlimited confidence that Jesus can fix the problem. She's not only displaying her, 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 her attitude, her, her need for Jesus, but she's expressing her faith. Remember what I said, she didn't go to the head waiter, she didn't go to the bride and groom, she, didn't, no, she went straight to Jesus to fix her problem. And she doesn't go into any detail of what caused the problem. She just simply states the fact there is no wine. And by doing so expresses a great expectation that Jesus can fix this. Now, Jesus responds to Mary's kind of what I'm calling kind of passive aggressive appeal. By saying, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Now, on the face, it seems that Jesus' response could be perceived as being rude, inconsiderate, and actually somewhat selfish. Woman, what does that have to do with us? But I believe what Jesus is doing is he is I couldn't think of a better word, but he's kind of baiting Mary into this divine dialogue with him. He's he's baiting her into this divine dialogue to set the stage for a miracle. Now, I want you to know that Jesus uses what I'm calling this baiting technique several times, a few times within his ministry... Uh, One incident you might be familiar with, when there was a Canaanite woman whose daughter was severely uh, severely oppressed by a demon. Now, I don't know what the difference between uh, your daughter being possessed by a demon or severely oppressed by a demon. It seems to me both are pretty bad. But the idea is that she's in a really, really, really bad place with her and her daughter. So... The Canaanite woman, the text tells us, comes and kneels down before Jesus and says, Lord, help me. Again, like Mary, a simple declaration of need along with a a high sense of expectation that Jesus can do it. Are you all following me here? And you know what Jesus says to her? Jesus responds to this Canaanite woman It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. That's kind of rude, if you ask me. Jesus is comparing this Canaanite woman and her severely oppressed demon possessed daughter to dogs scavenging dogs seems kind of rude 
until you see what happens next. After Jesus says this, the woman responds, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be done to you as you're desired. And immediately her daughter was instantly healed. What I'm trying to say to you is Jesus is using this baiting technique with this Canaanite woman to create a divine dialogue to set the stage of a miracle. He hears her need. He sees her sense of expectation. But he's saying, listen, if I am just like totally rude with, with to you, will you still have faith? And she says, yes, Lord, even the dogs get to eat from the crumbs from the master's table. And Jesus says, you're a woman of faith. Let it be done to you. And that's exactly what's happening here with Mary. Jesus is baiting her into this divine dialogue. Woman, what does that have to do with us? I believe that Jesus is asking Mary, by Jesus asking Mary, what does this have to do with us, is his way of trying to solidify the fact that Mary's faith, he sees her need, he sees her expectation, but does she really have faith that Jesus alone can fix this problem? What does this have to do with us? I can only imagine in Mary's mind, when she heard the Lord ask that question, her response would be, what does this have to do with us? It has everything to do with us. I am completely empty here. I have no solution to this problem without you. I've exhausted all my resources. I have no ability to fix the problem. I'm destitute. I need you. Basically, Mary knew that Jesus was the only one that could fix the problem. And by coming to Jesus, Mary is saying, listen, I'm looking to you and to you alone to fix my problem. And this is exactly what the Lord wants to do in each one of our lives. He wants to create a divine dialogue with us so that we come to the point to say, I need you alone. He wants to exhaust us. It's like the hymn writer wrote. I need thee, oh, I need thee. Every hour, I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come to you. In your dialogue with the Lord, you'll, you'll share your doubt, your confusion, your, your disappointments. But if you will allow the Holy Spirit to lead you into a divine dialogue, what you'll discover is the Holy Spirit's leading you to, to that you come to the point to say, I need Jesus. Amen. So will you come to Jesus this morning confessing your absolute need in him to fix your problem? After Jesus asks this question, he says to Mary, my hour has not yet come. I think to assure the, Mary's faith was in Jesus alone to solve his problem, Jesus says, my hour had not yet come. 
Jesus knew that performing this miracle is going to launch his earthly ministry. And it seems to me that Jesus is not being apprehensive about performing the miracle. Rather, he desires to see how Mary would respond to his comments. Mary had no idea. We have to admit the fact that Jesus knew exactly what he was talking about when he says, my hour had not yet come. And we have to conclude to the fact that Mary probably only knew maybe 10% of what Jesus knew when he says, my hour had not yet come. The point isn't some sort of theological humbo bumbo. It's not like that. Jesus is saying, listen, Mary, how are you going to respond to me when I say something to you that you don't quite really understand? And you know what she said? She turns to the servant and says, whatever he says to do, do it. <laughs> Basically, Mary has come, presented her need, her sense of expectation. She's really given over to the fact that only Jesus can fix the problem. And then Jesus says, well, yeah, but, you know, you really don't know all the the theological implications of what's going to happen here. And and Mary says, I don't care. Whatever he says to do, just do it. Listen, brothers and sisters, you don't need to know all the ins and outs of theology. I tell you, I've studied it for four years in my undergrad, another four years in my graduate degree. You know, uh, I, I thank God for that. But you don't have to know all the ins and outs of theology. What you have to do is admit your need. You have to have expectation that God's going to show up. Right? And you're going to and you have to say, even though I might not completely understand whatever Jesus says to do, that's what I'm going to do. This is key if we want to drink of this better wine. We must have this unwavering faith in Christ. Jesus would later tell his disciples, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted to him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believing that you have received them, they will be granted to you. My challenge to you today is that you would ask the Lord to give you an unwavering faith in his word. That you would be able to say to the Lord, Lord, whatever you say to do, I'm going to do it. Now the narrative changes to verse 6. It says, now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 30 to, 20 to 30 gallons each. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. These six stone water pots holding 20 to 30 gallons of water now dominates the narrative. These water pots were used to obey the Jewish rules of purification. For example, the washing of the hands before and after dinner and the washing of cups and bowls and pots. And we see from the reading of the New Testament is that the Pharisees were all over the fact that if a person ate with unwashed hands and would eat with unwashed utensils, that this fact would defile a man. The idea that the Pharisees were teaching was the idea that external, 
outward observance to the law is what makes you clean before God. And so now we're confronted with these six water pots that basically represent the vessels of the law. Jesus is using these vessels of the law to contain the better wine that will that gives us a clear indication of the meaning behind the miracle. The point is, is that there is abundance of water. There is an abundance of outward observance to law keeping. There's an abundance of rule keeping righteousness. As a matter of fact, rule keeping righteousness is the number one religious persuasion in the world. That you can gain God's approval by some sort of external outward observance to some sort of religious action. And Jesus came to do away with that. The problem is in the parable, I mean in the, in the narrative, there's abundance of water for this outward observance of keeping the law. But there is no wine for celebration. So these six water pots, these vessels of the law, bring us face to face with the miracle itself. The people believe that these outward observances of the law would wash away the impurities of the world from their life and to make them clean in the sight of God. But brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you, no matter the amount of law keeping will make us righteous before God. Listen to how the Bible says it. For what the law could not do, God did. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. What the law could not do, making us righteous and clean before God. God did by sending forth his son to fulfill the requirements of the law so that we could drink of the better wine. Jesus came that we'd have abundance of grace and so he ordered for these water pots to be filled up. They had tons of water. And it says that they filled up these water pots to the brim. And I believe that Jesus wanted them to fill them up to the brim because Jesus came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. Jesus said to them, draw out some of the water, take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him and the head waiter tasted it, which had become wine. And he did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn it knew. And the head waiter said to the bridegroom, Every man who serves the good wine first, and then after people have drunk freely, they serve the poorer wine, but you've kept the good wine until now. The good wine has come. I believe that the abundance of the wine is often overlooked in this miracle. If you just do simple math, these guests now had over 150 gallons of wine to drink. You talk about, you talk about a party. The party's got to start. And we're not talking about Boone's Farm wine. We're talking about the best wine you've ever drank wine. And over 150 gallons of it. Nobody's going anywhere. I want you to see what would have caused these guests to experience great disappointment. 
What would have caused this host family to suffer extreme embarrassment now becomes the source of a joyous celebration. 150 gallons of the best wine you ever drank. And that's the point, is that Jesus has an abundance for you. He has an abundance for you. He wants you to drink and drink it fully and freely. He wants you to drink of him. Now this motif of an abundance of wine, well it occurs in the Old Testament prophecies. And, and basically when the prophets use it, it's to characterize the kingdom of God that Jesus the Christ would come to establish. And I just want to share a couple of these with you. I, I might have gone over a little bit this morning. First of all, from Isaiah, the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all the peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces of marl and refined and aged wine. And then the prophet Amos, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the mountains will drip with sweet wine and they will also plant vineyards and drink their wine. The prophet Joel, in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord. And then what we open the service with, our call to worship this morning from, from Jeremiah chapter 31. Hear it now in the context behind this great miracle of turning water into wine, the fulfillment that we have in Christ. When Jeremiah prophesied centuries before, in that day the mountains Excuse me, they shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion. Zion's the city of God, the eternal city of God. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of, the, of Zion. And they shall be radiant over the goodness of our Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and their herd. Their life shall be like a water garden, and they shall languish no more. Then the, the young women will rejoice in a dance, and the young men and the old will make merry. And they, I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them, and I will give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priest with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. The meaning of the, pair of, of the miracle is that Jesus has come to give us an abundance of wine that we would be satisfied, be comforted by His grace, to rejoice and make merry in the goodness of God towards us through Christ. I believe that Jesus chose to turn the water into wine as His first miracle because it best exemplifies that Jesus came to usher in the kingdom of God and to give to us, His people, an inheritance of God's grace in abundance that would, we, that would transform all of our mourning into rejoicing. As I conclude this morning, I want you to know that Jesus once... He knew that once these guests tasted the better wine, there wouldn't be any of them that says, oh, I, I like the old stuff better. And that's the way it is when you come to Christ. When God works grace in your heart and your life, when you're truly transformed, you never say, you know, the old way was better. <laughs> no. The old way is not better. 
once you taste the goodness of God's grace, you'll say to yourself, I want to be done with rule-keeping righteousness. Once you taste the better wine of Christ, you want to say, I want to be done with performance-driven Christianity. Once you taste of Christ, you want the fullness of Christ in your life. You want him to fix your problems, and you want to come back to that trough again and again and again. And you know what? You can, because there is an abundance of wine. The psalmist declared, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is a man who takes refuge in him. And my challenge to you today is taste and see that the Lord is good. He is the better wine. Be blessed by taking your refuge in him. Come to Christ with faith, believing that only he can solve your problems. Let go of your attempts to try to please God with outward obedience. And trust Christ to cleanse you from the inside out. Let us together come to Christ knowing that he will provide for us an abundance of grace so that we will be able to celebrate God's goodness for all eternity, from from now on and forevermore. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we come to you today thanking you for the better wine in Christ. Lord, we come to you saying we're done with the old wine. We're done with it. It's not good enough. Your grace is sufficient. Lord, work in our hearts so that we would come to the point of believing that only you can fix our problems. That you will transform us from the inside out. And that you will cause us as your people to drink of the abundance of the better wine of Christ from now on and into eternity. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.